This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're talking about generating wealth in the clean energy economy. California is leading the trend away from fossil fuels that are destabilizing the weather and hitting corporate profitability. Several entrepreneurs have become billionaires, creating new power and auto companies, and many more are trying to follow. History shows that new wealth is created when economies move from one form of energy to another, wood to coal, coal to oil, and now fossil to renewable. Boosters say the transition away from dirty fuels is the biggest business opportunity of this century. Over the next hour, we will discuss the promise and the perils of powering America's economy in a new way. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us two entrepreneurs. Brad Matson is CEO of Siva Power and author of The Solar Phoenix, How America Can Rise from the Ashes of Solyndra to World Leadership in Solar 2.0. And Jigger Shaw is founder of Sun Edison, one of the country's largest solar companies, and author of Creating Climate Wealth, Unlocking the Impact Economy. Please welcome them to Climate One. Um, welcome both. Uh, Jigger Shaw, when you were 16 years old, you read a book that changed your life. Tell us that story. Well, unfortunately, I forgot what the book was called. <laughs> but it was one of those books that... Um, you know, that, that you were sold door to door by the Southwestern Company um, when, you know, college students sold uh, books through their backpacks. And, um, and I think my dad bought it when I was maybe 10, but I, you know, just couldn't be bothered to read the 14th book that he would buy from these folks. Um, so I bought it, I read it when I was 16. And what was interesting is it was a book on electricity. And it just, you know, every two pages was, here's how coal power worked. Here's how wind power worked. Here's how nuclear power worked. Here's how solar power worked. And what struck me was that every you know, technology got two pages. So in my mind, all of them were equal, right? So coal was equal to solar, was equal to wind, was equal to nuclear, was equal to gas. And so I didn't know any better that coal was the dominant form of energy back then and solar was really small. And after reading it, I thought, well, you know, this solar thing actually does seem to make a whole lot of sense. There's a lot of sunlight. And, um, and I think that that's, you know, as I've progressed in my career, something that I've found, you know, when you talk to five-year-olds or six-year-olds and you ask them where the electricity comes from, they always say the sun and the wind. You mm -hmm. know, they, they never say it came from, you know, digging up the ground in uh, Wyoming. Um, <laughs> and you had an idea later on to start a, a, a solar company, uh, which turned into uh, Sun Edison, but you wor worked at BP first. And how did that uh, give you credibility in the energy industry? Well, I mean, I don't know that it gave me credibility, but, I, you know, I, they had a solar energy division. Uh, in 1999, 2000, BP was the largest manufacturer of solar panels in the world, and, and I went to go work for them, but it was still part of BP. Um, and the thing that struck me was, was we had this, I remember this knowledge management initiative within BP when I was there, and so they tried to connect us all through, you know, some private LinkedIn. And... Um, and so I'd talk to people that were in the northern slopes of Alaska or talk to people in Azerbaijan and other places at BP, and they were all universally 
pro-solar, all of them, right? And so I think this notion that we're on two sides and these guys hate us and these guys love us is completely false. In general, I think, you know, that's one of the big lessons I got out of BP was that people in general are actually for this resource efficiency revolution. I think the second thing I got out of BP was that, I mean, look, I mean, people used to take my phone calls because I was like, well, I'm calling from BP Solar. And they're like, oh, okay, I'll give you five minutes, even though I would think was, was 26 years old or something. Um, um, and, and so, you know, reputation matters. And that really came from the fact that, you know, BP sort of, you know, was a large company, did, did good work. At the time, John Brown was CEO, and they hadn't missed a quarterly earnings call, et cetera. And so I think, you know, some of these basic business practices I do think are lacking in some of the social entrepreneurship courses that, you know, people take. Um, it really does matter that you're steeped in, you know, the proper training in capitalism. Brad Matson, how you start in the semiconductor industry. Tell us how you got to, to energy and, and uh, yeah, where you are now. Yeah, that's right. I about 30 years in the semi industry, so I'm relatively new. Uh, Jigger is actually a veteran of the industry. I came in new from the side. And the side was really interesting. Uh, after uh, doing two companies in semiconductors, I retired for a while, and I was working with social entrepreneurs. And what I found, whether you're in Africa or India or in the jungles of Nicaragua, uh, if you want to enrich lives, you want to like reduce poverty, energy is at the base of it. So I was doing small like solar lanterns in, in, in Africa, um, mini grid uh, biomass power plants in remote villages in India, or hybrid wind solar panel uh, uh, power installations in the jungles of Nicaragua. So energy was, became really key. And, and when I was working with all these uh, social entrepreneurs, I fell in love with solar. I mean, it was, and it might have been because it's a semiconductor device. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it really does go back. It's a diode. You know, a lot of people believe that. In fact, people in solar like to say, we're not semiconductors, but it is a semiconductor device. So it actually, my 30 years of work and the study wasn't completely wasted in my second career. I mean, I could latch on to everything I learned. And a lot of it did, uh, you know, uh, kind of, transfer over in terms of what you could do in, in solar. But I, I, I did that for several years, and uh, there's some really notable companies in the energy space and uh, developing countries were developed then. Uh, but I ended up wanting to see things at the scale, a little bit like you're saying, how do you bring this to scale? And uh, so I, I don't know, made a mistake, or it was an exciting thing, take your pick, going into venture capital. <laughs> so <laughs> I spent a few years in venture capital trying to figure out how to bring these technologies to scale. And I focused 100% on solar at that point. I, I really made a, you know, my transition point in my career was technology's cool, and I worked in technology for 30 years. Uh, but it was really technology for technology's sake. And a lot of my customers were either in Japan or Korea, South Korea or Germany. I mean, these were really successful countries and successful companies already. Uh, but I really wanted to see technology benefit humanity in a more direct way. And I saw solar is a, a way to really do that. It's not just technology for technology's sake, but it can have a profound positive impact. So you're talking about social entrepreneurs, people who create companies. They want to change the world through a company rather than, than a nonprofit. But Jiggershaw, it sounds like you think that some of them are not well suited or, in fact, your book is a big part about the reason solar has been successful. It's not the social entrepreneurs or social investors. It's hard-nosed capitalists looking for a return. That's why it's been so successful, not sort of the do-gooders. Yeah, and the do-gooders are valuable. I mean, I was on the board of Greenpeace for six years, and so I, I see the huge value that they all play. But I think that when you think about making change at scale, whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about the empowerment of women, or providing energy access to the 1.3 billion people around the world who don't have it, or clean drinking water, 
everything has a trillion dollar price tag associated with it, right? I mean, if you want to decarbonize our grid, it's a trillion dollars. If you want to provide energy access to the poor in all these countries around the world, it's a trillion dollars. And so how do you raise a trillion dollars, right? You start with a million, and then you start, or maybe in 100,000, then you get to a million, then you get to 10 million, then you get to 100 million, and each, each pathway, you're actually proving to a larger source of capital that you deserve the right to use their capital, right? And I think that that requires some respect for the system. And I, look, I'm just like everyone else after 2008, you know, think that capitalism probably should be improved a little bit. But, <laughs> but, when, you, but when you think about, um, you know, the trajectory that Sun Edison took, um, you know, there, were one, there was one other competitor that started at the same time that we did. And um, that competitor took money from San Diego football players to provide uh, financing for solar power purchase agreements um, for San Diego city schools. Um, and we decided to take $60 million from Goldman Sachs. Their cost of capital was about 6 or 7%. Ours was 17% after tax, right? But at the time at which we went through Goldman Sachs, you know, um, after that process was over, Wells Fargo was banging, you know, a, a path to our door, so was MetLife and MassMutual and others, and saying, wow, if you got through that rigorous process, then you can get through our process, <laughs> right? But if you got through San Diego football players, we don't know that your stuff actually works. We don't even know if they read the documents, right? I mean, before they made the investment. So it's just one of those things where I think social entrepreneurs feel so empowered by some foundation giving them a, a program-related investment for three million bucks at 3% interest, but that doesn't really actually force them into the rigor necessary to get to the next stage, get to the next stage. So, I mean, we're on track now. I mean, the solar industry is already deployed roughly a trillion dollars, and we're on track to doing another trillion between now and 2019. And what you seem to be saying is business first, social cause second. You can't get those two mixed up, otherwise you're not gonna be as successful or well, as I credible to. Yeah, I wouldn't make it linear. I actually don't think that you can solve the world's problems without a trillion dollars, right? I mean, I just don't. And so whether you're trying to provide drinking water to the village that I, grew, that I was born in in India, or whether you're talking about you know, whatever it is, that you, like the empowerment of women, right? I mean, the empowerment of women is, around the world is generally energy related because many women around the world are spending five, six, eight hours a day compensating for the lack of energy, whether they're walking to get water, whether they're walking to collect firewood, all these other things. And so giving them basic things like solar lanterns or solar home systems or water pumps or all these things are not zero cost, you know? And so I think that no one's gonna give you a trillion dollars unless they believe that you're gonna be a good steward of that money and that you're gonna give them a solid rate of return um, on a risk-adjusted basis uh, based, on, based on the promises that you've made. Um, so I don't think it's linear. I think that to make social progress at scale, you have to be good at business. And let's talk about where some people can make good investments now. There's, uh, if you wanna be a investor in, in the clean energy economy, uh, there's a number of publicly traded companies. There's, there's Tesla, SunPower, et cetera. There's some $5 billion companies out there that, that seem pretty good. Uh, Brad Masson, wh where should an investor who wants to get in on the clean economy, where should they be looking? Uh, boy, that's a tough one. Because a lot of them, once it's exciting and people start to get in, they kind of plow in and overinvest. And so you can uh, be coming in too late. If you come in too early, there's risk. You know, uh, so it's a little bit tricky. But I'd say generally uh, what's happened is We've switched over from the technology, and I think this is a key part of Jigger's book as well. We're, we're past the technology driving point. So a lot of like startups that look at new technologies for renewable energy aren't so important as the deployment side. 
And so uh, not all the deployment problems have been solved. I mean, you know, you look at Solar City, a classic example of doing residential, uh, but there's a huge market in the commercial area that's still kind of untapped. And uh, so when they solve, let's say, the new business model, the, the, the parallel to the residential one that Solar City has for commercial, because there's a problem between who owns the facility and who's leasing the facility, you know, the ownership. But there's, if you solve that business problem, it's a huge opportunity. There's another Solar City or Sun Edison out there that's worth $6 billion if you solve that problem. So there's new business models that need to come into play. You need to be looking out for those. They'll be on the deployment side in markets that have yet been tapped because there's huge untapped markets. And, but a lot of people who've invested in solar, if you invested in solar in the 80s or 90s, you would have got burned. That may be different <laughs> than no, last I, year. I, I'd argue right. with that a little bit. Depends on when you get in. All things go in cycles. Sure. It depends on when you get in when you get out. But The Walton general, family made a lot of money in first solar. <laughs> and solar's been a good place to lose money uh, in the last couple of decades. That's well, I think it's, well, it's important to, to define what we're talking about here. And so since 2003, you know, we've invested roughly a trillion dollars into clean energy solutions um, as a, you know, as a world. Um, the vast majority of that money went into project finance, right? So Wells Fargo invested in solar projects on Walmart's rooftops or Costco or Macy's or Whole Foods or Target, et cetera. None of those have lost money that I know of, not from institutions. So Goldman Sachs didn't lose any money on their fund. So Wells Fargo, MetLife, MassMutual, none of those guys lost a dollar. And in fact, they've all been performing assets. Well, the big boys make money. It's the little guys who lose the money, right? No, but even the little guys, the little guys that invested in solar for the church that's in their community didn't lose money. They're still getting a check. You know, whether the financial crisis happened or not, the, the electricity company is still billing you every month for the power that you're using. And so for those guys who financed solar for their own homes or, or for their churches or for their schools or for their community centers or other things, they're still getting a check in the mail every month for the electricity that that was provided to them. Now, for the folks who invested in new companies, whether they were, you know, manufacturing companies or whether they were development companies, et cetera, well, you, you know, the, uh, hopefully you know the risks that you're taking in those companies. I mean, those companies, depending on what stage of the company that you're investing in, are risky investments. That's what venture capital is, right? And so, so if you lose your money on that, well, then you should know better to, to figure out what risk you're taking. But for a lot of the folks that I target um, in general, um, what they're looking at is, is as baby boomers, um, they remember the Fidelity Magellan Fund, right? Everybody was supposed to be in the Fidelity Magellan Fund. Peter Lynch was, the, was right? God. And, you know, and, elect and stock markets were supposed to go up by an average of 10% a year, and they did, and all that stuff. But then 1999 happened, and the 2000 bubble burst. And, and since 1999, the returns in the stock market have not been that great. And so now you're sitting there at between the ages of, you know, 55 and 70, and you're a baby boomer, and you're saying, what should I do? And a lot of those guys are saying, Prudential is offering me 3% returns in my annuity account for the rest of my life, which now that I've worked my butt off for 35, 40 years, and I've got $2 million in my bank account, making 3% on that to live off of for the rest of my days is not what I planned on. Um, the returns in our space regularly are between 7 and 10% returns. And a lot of folks are looking at that. They're saying, you know, I'm going to invest in my community. I'm going to invest in, in people that I know and I trust and help them reduce their electricity prices while making a solid rate of return for myself. One place where people do that, these, I don't know if you call them social entrepreneurs or not, but Solar Mosaic, a couple Absolutely. of uh, former activists, uh, uh, Dan Rose and Billy Parrish, who created Solar Mosaic, which kind of democratized, try to bring crowdsourcing, crowdfunding to solar. Uh, people can fund a particular project and get better than a bank return, 
Uh, Brad, I'm making six on six. my portfolio in Solar Mosaic. Okay, full disclosure. I've also put some money in there, but you wonder <laughs> uh, whether uh, there's unknown risk, like what if the school, you know, am I fully aware of that risk in there? I'm not so sure, but that 4%, 6% isn't free. There's some risk underneath there. Well, there's always risk, but I think, but you can make a portfolio. So like my portfolio with Solar Mosaic, I've got, you know, you know, I just was testing it out, so I have like $1,000 with them. But I have $100 in 10 projects, right? So if one of those projects has a problem, the other nine hopefully should be doing okay. And, you know, at Sun Edison, um, they had a quarterly conference call, I think, three quarters ago, where Ahmad uh, said on the conference call that we've underwritten 1,200 solar projects since Sun Edison was started in 2003, and not a single one of them has failed. Not one, right? And so... You know, so if done properly, these solar projects can be underwritten properly, and you shouldn't be, you know, on a portfolio basis ever losing money. Is, are these things threatening to utilities? Do they see this as competition? Are they going to try to co-opt this or, or uh, stab it in the heart at some point? Brad Matson? <laughs> well, of course, that's already happening. So there's legislation going on in several states. Uh, the, the big uh, debate now is focusing around net metering. And uh, you see wins and losses in there. For the most part, solar is doing a great job. And, and net metering is where people can explain net metering. So net metering really is if you have a solar power plant on your home, uh, basically the power you pump into the uh, grid, uh, you get compensated for at the same rate that you charge. So you just the meter runs backwards, so to speak. Uh, and uh, what basically the argument for the utilities is, uh, okay, that's fine. If we give you energy, you give us energy back, it's the same price. But when you don't, the sun isn't shining, you're then using our services for free. You know, and therefore this backup battery, which the grid asks, uh, acts as uh, for them, is not being compensated for. So there's an argument about what is the appropriate uh, uh, compensation for the, the, the service the utility companies provide. If you're kind of an independent homeowner with your own power plant, how do you compensate them? And I think there's a, that's a valid discussion. It is, and so because you, if you have solar on your roof, you generate electricity in the day, you sell it to the electricity, you basically buy it back at night. You're not paying for that service of sort of holding onto that electricity uh, from when you generate it and when you when you need it. Uh, my home was had a net a surplus of $150 last year. We have an electric <laughs> car, so we made a, a donation to Pacific Gas and Electric of $150. <laughs> should people be allowed to keep that money? Well, if they're, if they're I think, a net supplier, yeah. or pay some fee, reasonable fee, for using the grid. I think it's important, particularly for, for this audience, to understand how we got here. So from 1960 to 2000, the electric utility industry raised rates by about 0.6% per year on an annual basis. Right? So that's half the rate of inflation, roughly. Um, they did a really good job at, at what they did. Um, in the late 90s, Howard Wenger, who's a you know, a uh, employee at Sun, at Sun Power, one of the senior executives, and Tom Stars got together and because the utilities wanted to experiment with solar and said, you know what, we've got to do all this stuff. And the utilities said, you know, our meters are from the 1960s. And so they really aren't going to be able to do what you want them to do. We can't put two different meters, m meter them separately, bill you separately. And so let's come up with this concept called net metering because the meters actually do have the capability of running backwards and it would just save us a whole lot of trouble if you did. So this is the utilities basically agreeing that this would just be so much easier than putting in $1,500 worth of new equipment, having us upgrade our billing system to be able to handle all this data. You know, let's just let it run backwards, right? Now that we're so successful, 
you know, they're saying, that was an unfair subsidy. <laughs> we can't believe that you guys snookered us into doing that. Well, look, I mean, you know, I think decisions that we made 20 years ago can be revisited. There are a lot of folks revisiting how that should work. And obviously, we're at ground zero in places like PG&E or in Hawaii, where there's so much solar happening that the utilities are um, absolutely in the throes of having to figure out what's going to happen to their 100-year-old business model, and should it be upgraded. Um, but the good thing is, is that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of common sense, um, dispassionate people doing government research, showing that we're not actually taking down the grid, that we're not actually destroying reliable power, that all of the unfounded claims that they make are actually unfounded, and, um, and that there is a reasonable pathway by which we can figure this out. Maybe there's a little bit of a, I mean, Green Tech Media, I think, came up with something where they said maybe there should just be a minimum bill, that you can't go to zero, that you should put in solar such that you're still paying 20 bucks a month to the utility, and that seemed to actually, the math seemed to work out when they did the analysis. Fair enough. Uh, would you buy stock in a utility company now, knowing that some of them face death spirals or competition from their, their customers? No, I would short them, and I would short them quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, I think the electric utility industry is just like the buggy whip industry, right? I mean, when you go from one technology to the next, then I think the electric utility industry will be with us for many, many more decades. But I think their companies are going to be worth a lot less in the future than they are now because they'll be providing less services. There are companies like ours that are providing a part of those services as well, and we're going to be compensated for part of that, and they're going to be compensated for the services that they're left to provide. If you're just joining us, our guests today at Climate One are Brad Matson, CEO of Siva Power, and Jigger Shaw, co-founder of uh, Sun Edison. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, how realistic is it that people can be off the grid with new uh, storage technology, microgrids, that sort of thing. So if utilities are trying to block progress, can people just go around utilities and say, I'm going to have solar, battery in my garage, uh, drive my car over some plate that then charges the electric uh, car, Jigashar, is that realistic? Yeah, I mean, look, I think we've had off-grid homes since the 1970s. Yeah, but those are, right? those are hippies so, in the hills. I'm talking about... <laughs> well, no, they were, they were trying to hide the marijuana that they were growing up in Rensselaer County um, from the DEA. But I think, look, I think... Um, <laughs> I mean, that's really how real goods, I think, stayed in business during the 80s. Um, but, you know, I think we're in a situation now where there is tyranny. And where there is tyranny, there needs to be solutions to that tyranny. So in, in Hawaii... Uh, electricity rates have gone in Oahu from about 14, 15 cents a kilowatt hour just six years ago or seven years ago to over 30 cents a kilowatt hour now. You can imagine if your wages haven't gone up at the same rate that those electricity bills are really starting to hurt your family's budget. So when someone knocks on your door and says, I can save you money using solar power, you're very open to that conversation. Now, when the utility company says, no, we've done enough solar, you're the, you're the you know, 500th person who've asked us, we've already approved 499, but we're not going to approve you, that seems capricious. And so you can imagine saying, screw off. I'm going to put a battery system in, and I'm just going to go off grid. And you're seeing grid defections are way up in places like Hawaii. They're way up in other places. Are they logical? Absolutely not. I mean, the electric utility company does a fantastic job of this balancing work. But you know, consumers are emotional. And today in Hawaii, it's completely cost-effective to go off grid. 
And Solar City, one of the big solar companies, uh, promises to have a, a project offering soon where basically you have Tesla batteries in your garage. Uh, you can have a sort of a bundled storage and generation uh, program. Uh, when people are thinking about going solar today, should they consider leasing or buying? 80% of the market is leasing. Uh, Brad Masson, would you lease or buy? Do, first of all, do you have solar? Not yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually waiting to get our own solar panels from my company to put them on it. there. <laughs> solar CEO with no solar on your house. Okay. But well, we're, we're in the process of building the panels. Um, the, uh, Lease or buy? I think it's going to be a transition. Today, uh, the prices are coming down. You know, it's always this question, lease or buy, even if you're buying a car you know, right. or a copier for your office. Uh, you've always had these two options. Uh, it has made sense in the past, absolutely, the leasing model that Jigger kind of promoted, developed and promoted and, and uh, commercialized uh, is very powerful, and it's a result of, of a vast expansion of solar in the United States. The costs are coming down so fast. At some point in time, it's like uh, going down, and you, know, you can buy a system at Home Depot, and then you just do it. Your selfers may come in. So I think that we will see shifting business models. Right now, leasing is, is smart for most people. But if you have $10,000 what you were going to buy a car with, you might put that $10,000 into a solar power plant. So I think we're going to see, and a lot of the, even Solar City is going to, you know, loans. You know, so basically you could lease or you could do a loan. So I think we'll see both business models uh, develop here, and you're going to probably see growth of the loan model. Because it's complicated, Jigashar. It's more complicated than buying a, a car because you have to th these projection rates and think about kilowatt per hour. People don't really understand what they're buying. It's pretty darn complicated, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, if you talk to homeowners in California who are trying to figure out how they get charged by PG&E, that's really complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who understands you know, their the bill. first 300 yeah. kilowatt hours, you're going to get charged this. The next 300, this much. And you have a fixed charge. Oh, and by the way, if you decide to do an electric vehicle, we're only going to let you charge during these hours of the day. I mean, look, I think solar is super simple. Right? I mean, we're going to charge you this flat cost per kilowatt hour. Here's the GE bubble meter that we're going to use to actually monitor how many we're doing. Look, the leasing system made a whole lot of sense, and it's the reason why we're here today, because consumers didn't want to take the risk of the solar panels not working. Right? They wanted us to take that risk, and they wanted to be billed every month based on how much we produced. And that's how Sunrun and SolarCity and all these folks got started. Now, today, I think there are a number of people who like the fact that the government has stepped in and actually helped to create standardized contracts, so there's no usurious terms in there. 70 or 80% of the entire solar industry now uses the same exact contract. Um, and so people are feeling comfortable with taking the performance risk on solar. Once you're comfortable taking the performance risk on solar, you should do loans. And loans are way, way cheaper than leases. And we all know that. Um, but you know, it, was, it made sense to pay for the lease if you were skeptical as to whether you were actually going to save that money or not. Um, it gave you a peace of mind, which was worth the extra premium that you were paying. One of the bellwethers I've noticed in solar is hearing uh, advertisements on AM radio during San Francisco Giants games. <laughs> We're clearly marketing solar uh, to Joe Sixpack uh, you know, on AM radio, which is a new thing that didn't happen long ago. It's also happening, Jigger Shaw, in, in red states. So tell us about the solar adoption around the country, because uh, a lot of people, it's not just sort of a, a Berkeley, Boston kind of thing anymore. Yeah, so when I was working at BP, um, we did the very first uh, mass market marketing program for solar in 2003. And, um, and we had this great tagline. It said, um, money doesn't grow on trees. It falls from the sky. And, um, and we were going crazy. We just sold a ton of solar. And it was fantastic. And we did this uh, study afterwards just to see who our customers were, et cetera. 
the vast majority of our customers identify themselves as Republican, um, and the vast majority of customers uh, said that they were doing it because they wanted to give the utility the middle finger, <laughs> right? Um, and so, so, so you can imagine that it hasn't changed much since 2003. There's a lot of people out there who value their independence. I mean, you know, we're Americans. And so they value their independence and they like having some control over their destiny, um, which solar allows them to do. And, um, and then now that you've got Hurricane Sandy and you've got you know, power disruptions at an all-time high, et cetera, in the United States, people are saying, I want better power quality too because I've got, uh, I'm uh, you know, a business person that stays at home. And if I'm out of internet and I'm out of electricity, I can't make money. And so I actually want to have backup power and these kind of things. And diesel and natural gas generators are very expensive. Um, but So that's one demographic, which is sort of the green tea party. Um, the second demographic is, of course, environmentalists and, and uh, people who care about climate change and folks who actually want to do the right thing while saving money. But there's a third demographic, which I think people overlook, which is a lot of people on fixed income. Um, and so like in Idaho, for instance, they tried to roll back um, net metering last year. And the Public Service Commission had a hearing, and there were, I think there was only 120 people in Idaho who have net metering. <laughs> and they all came, and the vast majority of them were over the age of 60. And the reason they had done it was because their Social Security isn't being indexed to what they believe is their inflation. Um, and so they really wanted to limit how much Idaho Power's cost increases affect them. And the same thing is true in Arizona. So you've got a lot of AARP members now involved. So AARP is now... Um, inserting themselves in the process in Connecticut, inserting their process in Wisconsin and other places. So I think we have an extraordinary coalition of people uh, on our side. And you even have a lot of folks on, the, on you know, uh, uh, communities of you know, color and other, other disadvantaged communities who are saying, look, this is a way for us to actually save money as well. And so they're jumping in uh, at the same time that the electric utility companies are using them as a pawn to say, oh, this is why net metering sucks because you're hurting poor people. It's the same people who actually are stepping up saying, we want access to advanced technologies and we want to be able to control our destiny. Jigger Shaw is founder of Sun Edison. Brad Matson, you're looking to perhaps build a solar factory in the United States. What states are more receptive, more progressive when it comes to uh, welcoming solar industries, uh, we, clean energy industries in general in the United States? It, it changes a little bit over time because, as you know, the famous Solyndra kind of blow up. And if you have in your state uh, one of those examples, then the, the legislation, the people pull back their uh, horns. But, you know, New York is classic, you know, aggressive right now in terms of not only doing a research uh, institution in, in Albany, but also uh, promoting, they're trying to get a new solar factory there as well. So there's some states that are really aggressive in, in solar. Mississippi did quite a bit of work to try to bring solar manufacturing there. Oregon was also. So it goes state by state, but that changes over time based on what their experience is. We've been talking a lot about clean energy. Let's talk about the other side. Uh, Jigger Shah, we need to move away from dirty fuels because of, of climate change. How are our, you mentioned that utilities are going to be worth less uh, in the future and have a different role. What about fossil fuel companies, oil and coal companies? Well, I think it's, um, I think we should take those two separately. So today, the largest coal company in the world is Peabody Coal. And Sun Edison stock price is higher than Peabody Coal. So we're worth more than Peabody Coal. So I'm very proud of that. Um, the coal industry is now in decline and I think headed into much farther decline such that um, in the last auction in the Powder River Basin for free land that basically the Department of Interior gives to these coal companies for free, which is shocking to me, no one bid 
Um, but coal demand coal. is going up in India and China, other places. It may be going down in the United States, but coal's market share globally well, is Well, not, not as of this quarter. So as of this quarter, coal demand in China actually went down for the first time in 25 years. And China has pledged that they are going to have peak coal, so they're not going to burn any more than a certain number of tons that they've already subscribed. Um, and China's doing it for purely selfish reasons. Um, the price that Australia and Mozambique, Indonesia is charging China for their coal is so expensive that China is saying solar and wind and energy efficiency and even nuclear is a lot cheaper than coal. And so, you know, I don't think China is an enlightened uh, climate change advocate, but I do think that, you know, we have now hit a price point where it's much cheaper. In India, you have the same thing, where India, yes, did do a lot of coal, but in India, the quality of their local coal is so poor that they have to import coal. They're, the rupee devalued from around 44 rupees to the dollar to over 60 rupees to the dollar a year ago, primarily because of their import costs uh, for fuel, right? I mean, and... Um, and so, you know, the new prime minister is saying, look, we've got to get off of, of imported oil and imported coal, and we've got to figure out how to use more domestic sources. And solar and wind are two of the things he's already publicly announced he's going to be pushing in a big way. So, so I think that folks who are enlightened are doing this for purely selfish economic reasons. I'm not sure that they're doing it for, you know, reasons of the planet. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, that I think is an opportunity, which is disappointing to me right now, but I think we'll, we'll get to, is, you know, the state of California really, as much as they've stepped up, hasn't stepped up, right? I mean, you think about Japan and Germany and where they are, it's time for the governor of California to say, we are going to be 100% renewable energy by X date. And I think we can. And Mark Jacobson at Stanford has a plan for doing that, and other people are working on that. Uh, so you think that the, t is the technology's there, it just needs yeah. some government leadership? I think NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, which is part of the Department of Energy, has said that the technology's there. Rocky Mountain Institute, Google has done their own study and is obviously putting a billion and a half dollars of their money behind investing in renewables. Um, there's the International Energy Agency that's done a study. There's not just Mark Jacobson. I mean, there's, there's many, many people who've done a study that said not only is it actually um, completely technically possible, and the Germans and others have proven that it's technically possible, there's no rolling blackouts in Germany, but these new studies have actually said that it's cheaper to actually go to microgrids and go to local power and go to these places than the business as usual case of replacing old stuff with the same old stuff that we put in 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And the shocking thing about it is it's the only way that we have to restore blue collar work. I mean, that's the thing is that when you look at the data after the financial crisis, the people who, who've never been given a job back are blue collar workers. Those are the folks going back to work at McDonald's at you know, 40 years old and making minimum wage. And those are the folks who have the skills and the training that they've already been given in the home builder industry or other industries where they were gainfully employed before the financial crisis that we can actually put back to work. The solar industry is now you know, hiring between two and 3,000 people a month because of our growth rate. And we could be hiring way more people if the state of California and others would actually listen to their own experts and actually go all in. Just one last rant. Right now, you know, Mike Peavy... <laughs> What Mike Peavy at the, at the Public Service Commission and, and Commissioner Florio are doing a boondoggle deal with um, Sempra to do a 650 megawatt gas plant. 
Why in this day and age would the state of California allow a $650 million, actually, sorry, 650 megawatt gas plant, which is going to cost $2 billion, the most expensive gas plant that I have ever seen, why would they possibly approve this boondoggle when we all know, uniformly, there's not a single person who is disputing this, that that plant will be uneconomic within 10 years? Because often it's thought that gas fired, which can turn up and down quickly like your stove, is necessary to firm up intermittent power, solar, wind, which is, you know, the, the sun shines in the day, wind blows at night, that that's necessary backup for... And it, it can't do that, actually. The, the fascinating thing, so I don't know, those of you, just to get slightly esoteric, there's this thing that people talk about called the duck curve. Right, so that if we do a lot more solar, that around 4.30 to 6 o'clock at night when solar is coming down, there's a big gap, right? And what they found was natural gas can't fill that gap. Why? Because gas turbines take about 45 minutes to an hour to warm up, right? And so for the first 45 minutes, it's only running the gas turbine, but not the combined cycle part of it, which, is, which would, would allow it to meet the EPA regulations on emissions. So what are they doing instead? They're building 1,300 megawatts in the state of California of storage. They're not using gas plants to actually meet the intermittency of, of solar and wind. They're actually embarking on 1,300 megawatts of storage. So the state of California basically is saying, we're doing the right thing on this side, but we've got to pay people off on this side just to get their buy-in, which is absolutely ridiculous. Why would you continue to actually like, spend ratepayer dollars on something that makes no sense? Back, back on Germany, Germany paid a handsome price for the solar adoption that they have. Spain also, and some people who are concerned about the cost of renewable energy, the impact on low and middle income people, Germany paid dearly to get the solar adoption they did. Even German voters and, and consumers had pushed back, and they, and they dialed it back after they got to a certain point. So yeah. isn't there a legitimate concern about going to 100% renewables in California has a price tag that may be painful for some people? Yes, in 2006, 2007, when I was helping to write the California Solar Initiative documents, we deliberately back-end loaded the solar in California so we didn't have the same issues that, that Germany had. And we've actually put solar in at roughly like 80 to 90 percent less premium cost than Germany did. But the U.S. has decided to do those things in healthcare. The U.S. pays for the world's health care and people thank us for it, right? So we spend way more on health care than the Germans do. Um, they spend way more on electricity because they want to be the, the owner of all this innovation in in electricity, and they have got extraordinary companies there that are now selling their goods and services here in the United States and in China and other places. And so different countries choose to invest their dollars different ways. But today, the cost of solar and wind are so much lower than they were in 06, 07, 08, 09 when Germany and Spain were ramping that it's time for us to ramp because six years later, this stuff is really cost effective. Brad Matson, can California get to 100% renewable power uh, at a cost that, it, that consumers can afford? Uh, I do not know the answer to that question. So Jigger's probably studied that more than I have. Uh, but I think that we don't have to have a goal of 100%, in my personal opinion. But we're like, uh, you know, carcination, like one, less than 1%. So we can grow nationally 30 times where we are today without getting into this controversy. So for me, I, I prefer to like this, that we don't need to argue about that. Uh, we can uh, grow, you know, 30 times from where we are today. And I think by the time we see that growth rate, uh, some of the storage technologies being invested in now that will solve these problems will be in place. So we really don't have to worry about 
too much solar or too much wind on the grid ever in the United States as far as I'm concerned. So the issue of how far we go, I think we need policies put in place to drive us to those levels, uh, but uh, arguing whether we end up at 100%, 80%, or 50% renewables, uh, it, it has to be way over 30, as I, I think. Uh, but with the exact number, uh, I think technology is going to help determine what that exact number is, and it's the technology being developed now, so we don't have all the answers. And one of the key issues is China has been accused of dumping solar panels. They, they put in a lot more money uh, than the United States in. There, they've been, there's a trade dispute. Uh, there's now tariffs on, on Chinese uh, panels coming to the United States. Jigashar, is that the right thing to, to penalize China for, for their success in uh, creating low-cost solar panels? Well, I mean, I view it as a, we're penalizing U.S. policy from Jimmy Carter, right? I mean, we have systematically since the late 70s decided that we wanted China to manufacture our stuff, right? I mean, whether it's the iPhone or whether it's uh, the computers that I buy or whether it's solar panels, we love working with China. And we have built our entire supply chains in China such that if you try to build solar in the United States right now, it's hard because the U.S. government really hasn't put together the program necessary to support manufacturers to be you know, competitive with, with world leaders. And so my challenge with the Chinese tariff case was that the U.S. government on one side, you know, manipulated by a, you know, by a, a German guy at the head of Solar SolarWorld, um, basically was taxing U.S. solar panels at the tune of around 20%. And on the other side, not providing clear guidance to the U.S. manufacturing industry and how they might actually compete with Chinese manufacturing. And so we, we're being damned on both sides. We're not getting a lot of local U.S. manufacturing, and we're paying 20% more for solar panels, which seems to make no sense whatsoever except in this crazy world that we live in. Brad Matson. Well, I think sometimes we have to live in a crazy world. It, it doesn't get solved overnight. So this is where I would uh, disagree a little bit. Uh, essentially, uh, if you ask should they be penalized, the answer would be yes. I mean, there's no doubt. I don't think anyone argues they were dumping. Uh, they put in twice the capacity of solar panels that the world needed. Uh, and when they had that glut, they just said, oh, we'll sell them at marginal cost, even below marginal cost. You know, so they would just, that was clearly uh, dumping. And uh, so we, you know, we have rules against that. If it was a U.S. company dumping, I mean, that's why we had antitrust laws. You can't have one company just try to take over the whole market and, and use a predatory pricing in order to get a large market share. But look where we are today. Uh, China has 80 to 90 percent of the world market in solar panels. So it's happened. Uh, so should something be done? Absolutely. I think something should be done. Now, the fact that it hasn't helped yet U.S. manufacturing, I would agree with Jigger on this one. We haven't done the counterpoint to that, which is if we are serious, we want to have manufacturing in the United States, then why isn't the government doing work to support that? Because actually, in a lot of ways, the government works against it. I, my, my kind of bottom line on this is we have a dependency on foreign energy already, our dependency on foreign oil. Why would we trade that for dependency on Chinese solar panels? When we look at the amount of foreign oil, it's less than half that we're bringing in. If we were fully dependent on energy, solar panels from China, it'd be closer to 80 or 90 percent that would be controlled by one, one group. And I think that would be insane. So yeah, we, you know, if there's unfair trade practices, we should keep the penalties in place that try to stop that. But at the same time, we have to do something to spur manufacturing in the United States, because this is a strategic uh, technology. It's something, if we want to pick a manufacturing industry to do something about, uh, this is one of them. I was around when we did it in semiconductors, you know, uh, where we said, well, wow, uh, Japan's going to own the semiconductor industry. And this is an enabling technology for not only the economy, but for our military. And we cannot afford to have this strategic technology be controlled by a foreign entity like that. This is as important or more important, and I don't know why we haven't woken up to that fact. 
Brad Matson is CEO of Siva Power and author of The Solar Phoenix. We're also joined today at Climate One by Jigger Shaw, founder of Sun Edison, and author of Creating Climate Wealth, Unlocking the Impact Economy. I'm Greg Dalton. We haven't talked about water. I want to talk about water briefly. Uh, not often a, a sector of the economy, Jigger Shaw, that's thought about as, as, a, as a great place to invest. It doesn't attract lots of entrepreneurs, lots of capital. Will we ever see a water billionaire? I mean, water is, we're in a huge drought here in California. Uh, is this an area where it can really innovation can happen to help us in this drought and what's coming ahead with climate change? Yeah, I think we will. I mean, the reason you don't have a water billionaire is not because um, the innovations don't exist. It's because we don't price water, right? I mean, 50% of the water draws out of the ground, not water consumption. It's sort of a different thing. But water draws are done for fossil fuel plants, right, or nuclear plants, right, so for cooling towers. Now, a lot of that water gets put back into the system after it serves its purpose for cooling, but that's 50% of the water draws. And a lot of those plants don't pay what I, you and I pay for the water that we do at at, at, our, at our homes. If they were paying that, then coal and nuclear would be completely uneconomic. They couldn't afford to pay for the water that they're drawing out of the, the reservoirs. And so, so now that San Diego is building an enormous um, um, desalinization plant, there's a real cost associated with that. So now the entrepreneurs in water actually have a price to compare against. It's like, well, you know, water is not free. Water costs this much. Right? And desalinization plants use a lot of energy. So there's energy costs embedded in there. There's the concrete and the other things they have to pay for that, et cetera. And so now you actually have a price to compare. So now you have a price to compare. The water entrepreneurs actually have the ability to go to public officials and others and say, my technology that you've been sort of you know, not respecting for the past 15, 25 years uh, now has a price to compare against. And I can show you that saving people water through energy efficiency or water efficiency is worth this much to you. And so I would like for you to support me on that. And I think that that is something that's coming. And you see that first in the agriculture community with a lot of drip irrigation technologies and others, which have been used for God knows how many decades in Israel, but hasn't come here. And they're now coming here because we have real water issues here. Um, and then next, we'll go into apartment buildings and other places where we haven't been metering and monitoring water and getting people to meter and monitor water so we actually can tell when a toilet's running or something else is happening so we can actually solve those issues. And so I think that's coming, but it requires a price signal to the entrepreneurs, and that's finally coming. Uh, Richard Branson is a billionaire, very well known. The Virgin Group was involved with you at the Carbon War Room. And a book recently by Naomi Klein says that he promised over $3 billion over a decade to develop cleaner fuels, and he only paid out $300 million. Has Richard Branson kept his promise on putting $3 billion into clean fuels? Well, I'm not going to speak for Richard because I think he has enough publicity that he can speak for himself. But I, but I do think that when you look at the biofuels space broadly... Um, Which is what he was talking about, uh, biofuels partly for his Virgin Airplanes. Yeah. And One of the things that I would say is, I mean, as somebody who's worked a lot in the nonprofit side through the carbon water on biofuels... Um, it's an extraordinarily complicated mess, and it's very difficult to see how an entrepreneur gets comfortable with that space. You know, when you think about what Solazyme and others are doing, the way that they're making money is that they're not offsetting fuels. They're offsetting chemicals, specialty chemicals, they're offsetting olive oil, they're offsetting all sorts of markets that are far more rational than the fuel markets. And so EPA currently, so Poet just came out with their cellulosic plant that just came online, and uh, EPA still has over 20 additional pathways that they have to approve before an entrepreneur can test it. They've been sitting on them for a long time, not because they're against cellulosic ethanol, but because they're understaffed. 
And so when you think about getting into the biofuel space, it's really hard to see how you actually legally get through the process without becoming a billionaire first and then coming in afterwards to see you know, how you want to do this, which is what Elon Musk did, I think, with Tesla. Right, and I've even talked to people from the U.S. Navy, and even the U.S. Navy doesn't have enough money to put into a billion-dollar bio uh, refinery that they're comfortable with. It's, it's big dollars and big challenges. We're talking about climate wealth and climate one. Let's have our audience question. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, two questions. The first one is uh, I remember when I was driving across the deserts in Southern California, there were acres of um, solar panels erected there. Uh, I believe Arco did it. I know friends that have since purchased those solar panels, which means it was destroyed. Uh, why did it? Why was it destroyed? Why did it fail? And what's that story? And the second one, isn't the entire solar panel system uh, reliant upon cheap labor in a country uh, with uh, less worker protections, health conditions, uh, and unionization and such. So aren't we really exploiting uh, poor countries in order to make our solar system work? Uh, thank you. Uh, an interesting comment on exploiting uh, cheap labor. I think to some degree the current state of the art, uh, that would be true. Uh, what China did was when they really made a decision to get into solar with both feet, they said, we have to expand fast. And what they took was this older technology, literally, you know, 10, 20-year-old technology, and they took the existing uh, factory, and they just said, let's build a 1,000 of them. And they didn't really look at next-generation tools or advanced manufacturing techniques, so they really used a lot of low-cost labor. I really believe that that's going to fundamentally change. It's already changing. Uh, what the Chinese are finding themselves is that uh, they have less quality control that way. They're moving to more automated systems as a cost reduction move, in fact, to move to automated systems. In terms of the plan I put together to put manufacturing in the United States, the way you do that is really high-speed, 100% automated tools, which really doesn't have a low-cost, you know, cheap labor. And in fact, what you want is technicians and engineers. And those systems with the factory, when you put them in a factory, they become half the cost of manufacturing in, in, in China. So you can, with fully automated tools, basically have lower costs than you can if you manufacture with, with labor, even cheap labor in China. Jigershaw, know anything about the Arco story, the solar plants that are decommissioned? Yeah, so, um, so the, you know, the, the Arco, Arco Solar was basically a, you know, a, a, a throwback to when the oil industry owned the solar industry, um, when Exxon and BP and others were all investors in, in SolarX and other companies, Amico. And, um, and, you know, they all had the same vision, which is that if you just made solar an order of magnitude larger than it is today, it would get an order of magnitude cheaper than it is today. And so at the time, we were producing hundreds of kilowatts of solar <laughs> per year. And so Arco said, if we build a five megawatt facility in the middle of the desert, then this thing is really just going to be awesome. Um, and it was thin film technology, and you know, nothing wrong with thin film technology. It's actually you know, quite good today. But back then, um, it wasn't as stable as it is today. And so Arco put all of these solar panels in the desert, and what they found was they were getting uneven degradation right, right out of the gate. And so in the solar industry, generally speaking, the way that it was built back then, and even now, a lot of it's built this way. You have 13 panels in a, in a string. And if any one of those panels is failing, it takes down the entire string. And so you saw a lot of that going on with Arco's system. And so then they just you know, decided to go declare bankruptcy and then 
and then sold it for parts. And a lot of folks bought it for camping equipment and that kind of stuff, and everyone got a panel. And even, I think I even have a panel somewhere in the garage. So We're talking about climate wealth at Climate One with Brad Matson and Jigger Shaw. Let's have our next question. Welcome. I, I agree we're having a bit of an energy revolution and an employment boom, but it's, it's happening in natural gas, and it's happening in North Dakota and, and Wyoming. If you look at some of the future plans of Hawaii and Puerto Rico, they're not looking all for solar as their deliverance, but they're looking at the facilities to take liquid natural gas, and, and they see that it allows them to continue burning stuff in their turbines. How, how scared should we be, or what is the real threat of cheap global natural gas coming from United, exported from the U.S. or wherever, wherever else it's cheap, curtailing solar or renewables? in other potential places. Jigershaw, the real boom, the real energy boom is natural gas. Well, this goes back to the trillion dollar um, conversation that we started with in the beginning, right? The reason why natural gas boomed the way it did was not necessarily just because of the opportunity, but all of the capital structures, all of the trust relationships, all those pieces were already in place. So at the time at which, you know, Anadarko and Chesapeake and others wanted to raise 20, 30, 50 billion dollars, they know who they knew who to go to, who actually to, you know, to hit up for that money and to get there. We're finally putting those relationships in place. So that's why we're now at a place where we can actually grow to the where I said that we could grow to in 2016. I think separately on the natural gas side, now again, we should talk differently about electricity than we talk about, you know, transportation fuels, right? On the electricity side, I think it's quite clear to everybody that I talk to that natural gas and coal, like, you know, cross over somewhere in the $3.60, 70 cents a uh, uh, million BTU range. And so now that natural gas is up to $4.20, $4.30 a million BTU, coal is cheaper than, than natural gas again. So, so I don't believe that natural gas is this, you know, threat to solar and wind. I think solar and wind is doing just fine and we've done fine that way. Now, if you want to go to Hawaii and export nations like, you know, Costa Rica or other places that are thinking about the LNG stuff from the, from the Hillary Clinton tour, um, you know, a lot of those guys um, have to spend a billion to a billion and a half dollars to actually build an LNG terminal. Um, that's not cheap. Um, so someone's gonna have to pay for that. So they're gonna add it to the cost of your natural gas bill probably to pay for it. And when you look at the delivered cost of of cooling uh, natural gas. Let's say natural gas is 4, 425 a million BTU here in the US. To get it to Hawaii would probably cost at least $9 a million BTU there, and that's low. It might actually be closer to 10. At $10 a million BTU, I mean, we're way more cost effective than $10 a million BTU gas, even on the solar hot water side. <laughs> you know, even just to provide people with solar hot water is a lot cheaper than $10 gas. And so I'm not overly concerned about the natural gas revolution. I actually think it's a good thing because I think that we're going to finally put the death nail into the coal industry, which I think is fantastic. And hopefully we'll actually get far more uptake of natural gas into diesel and the part of the transportation infrastructure um, to sort of reduce the oil's grip on the hegemony there. But, um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm bullish about renewable energy and where it's going. Last question. Welcome. Uh, my question is really related to climate change. Um, it's already there. Uh, seems to be running out of time. Um, so uh, the conversation very much focused on replacing high carbon by low carbon or even zero carbon, hopefully. Uh, and obviously that's, that will have a tremendous impact, also creates new jobs, new uh, business opportunities, but it's just part of the solution. So in terms of transportation, in terms of building green villages, building 
uh, green cities, uh, both on the retail side and on the wholesale side, what are the two gentlemen's viewpoints on the entire portfolio of activities required to de-risk climate change and to prevent not only financial disaster, human or human disaster, but also prevent uh, eco-justice disaster, and because we all know that the poor are affected disproportionately high by climate change. So, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I wrote my book. Uh, you know, I think that when you think about solar and wind, it's been extraordinary how far we've come. But solar and wind aren't going to solve climate change. Um, there's over, you know, 20 sectors that we have to do something in, from agriculture to timber and deforestation to industrial energy use. Um, and so, but the good news is that McKinsey, the International Energy Agency, and others, which is what I highlight in the book, actually have highlighted exactly which technologies we can deploy that have been around for 10 or 15 years that we, that we haven't deployed at scale. And part of what I'm doing in the private sector work I'm doing now is that I'm taking the lessons that we learned on financing solar and wind and figuring out how to finance wood pellet stoves, how to finance water efficiency technologies, how to finance all this other stuff that also you know, pays for itself. And you know, I think when you look at the, the data from IEA or McKinsey, they show that if you just did the stuff that pays for itself at a 10 to 15% rate of return, that you actually stave off some of the worst impacts of climate change um, and meet the interim goals that we have in 2020 and in 2030. And then I'm hopeful that we have new technologies available to us to do what we need to do between 2030 and 2050. I think Brad the, te the technologies are, are, are clearly there. Uh, and they're even economical. Uh, so I think this is uh, a travesty that we don't solve this problem faster. This is one area where, you know, Jigar and I can be working in industry to make things happen. And you push it as fast as you can. But there are entrenched forces, huge entrenched forces, with a lot of Senate votes. You know, this is an area where, you know, one thing the government does need to do is put a plan out there. I mean, if you start, first thing is, let's have a policy, let's have a plan that makes sense. If you don't start with that, it's an umbrella that helps. If you don't start with that, it stops, it slows down investment. We push as hard as we can, we open up avenues, we open up doors. But when, when there's an umbrella policy that everyone's clear, we're going in this direction, things just fall into line and we can accelerate this, uh, this pace of deployment a lot faster. Just look at Germany. It's a, it's a living example, laboratory, of when the government gives the right kind of policy, put them in place, people fall in line and they move, and they move aggressively. So, you know, they got up to high penetrations, 20 to 30% penetration of renewable energy, and we're, we're in a small percentage of that. Um, we can do it, and we can do it quickly. Uh, so we really, this is where leadership would help a lot from our, from our government, to create that umbrella where investors feel confident in investing in these technologies that are economical and solve the problem. We have to end it there. Brad Matson is CEO of Siva Power and author of The Solar Phoenix, How America Can Rise from the Ashes of Solyndra to World Leadership in Solar 2.0. And Jigger Shaw, founder of Sun Edison and author of Creating Climate Wealth, Unlocking the Impact Economy. You can listen to podcasts of this and other Climate One programs in the iTunes store. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks for coming today and thanks for listening. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chan. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd, and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Mm -hmm.